And we examined what I consider is one of the best examples for how we as believers are to receive the Word of God or receive really any new teaching. As we saw how the Bereans took, they received the Word by faith and then by reason they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas was teaching them were true. The ministry there in Berea uh, proved to be a fruitful one as many came to Christ, many there believed Yet, once again, gospel success was met by gospel opposition, as is always the case in the book of Acts. The gospel succeeds, and then immediately the gospel is stirred up. And yet, in all of this opposition, this opposition is nothing more than a tool for King Jesus to continue to advance the gospel further. That at no time is this opposition ever thwarting King Jesus' purposes. It's only advancing them. And so I say to you today, beloved, what often seems as perceived losses to the people of God is actually a victory for the purposes of Christ. What is often seen as perceived losses for the people of God is actually, in reality, a victory for the purposes of Christ. And so the Jews from Thessalonica had come, they ran Paul out of Berea, and the Berean church there in protection of Paul takes him. They bring him down as far all the way to Athens. And it is there in Athens that Paul has now left the region of Macedonia and into the region of Achaia, and where the next city will be Corinth. Those two cities, Athens and Corinth, are a part of Achaia, modern Greece. And it is, our, it is his time in Athens that which our text focuses this morning. Perhaps one of the most well-known passages in all of the book of Acts with Paul's ministry to Athens and the Areopagus. That being said, turn our eyes to the text this morning, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that is, Timothy and Silas, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We, 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 we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. For as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. But Paul went out from their midst, yet some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was a 250-mile journey from Berea to Athens. It's hard to see, but Berea is all the way up there, top left hand, the bottom city. Athens is all the way down at the bottom right corner of the green area of Achaia in Athens. It would have taken basically 12 days if Paul would have traveled this on foot where he would have came down, went through Delphi, and then over to Athens. But instead, he took the route by sea, which was a three-day journey. There, he would have arrived in the, in the port of Piraeus, walked the Homoxetus Highway northeast to Athens. And that is where he arrives. Perhaps there are few cities that are more notable and important in history than that of Athens, Greece. It was the the cradle of democracy, a seedbed of the philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno. It was the eye of Greece, the mother of arts, the center of enlightenment, science, and literature for the ancient world. It had produced the loftiest epics, laughed in the wittiest comedies, cried in the greatest tragedies, competed in the greatest games, fought in the most profound battles, constructed some of the most glorious architecture. And I I think how many of us, including myself, would love to go on a trip to Athens to get a journey, a vacation to Athens, Greece, to find ourselves in one of the greatest cities in the history of humanity, to visit the Acropolis, 
to see the statues, to sit in the theaters. It would be an amazing experience. It really would. But unlike the standard tourist, Paul was not very amused when he came to Athens. Paul isn't amazed. He's not a spectator who is in love with what he finds. He's not just beaming over all of the neat statues and the incredible history there. No, that's anything but what we find with the Apostle Paul. And that brings us to our first point. In our first point of our text, we see a provoked evangelist. Provoked evangelist. Verse 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some being the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears which we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, our text begins with telling us that Paul is waiting there in Athens. We saw last time in our ministry that that Timothy and Silas had remained in Berea, likely helping to strengthen the new church there, getting elders in place to ensure that there was a proper form of governance in the church And he's there in Athens. And really, what this text seems to imply is that really he didn't have any thought of doing ministry in Athens. Um, I mean, he's just kind of waiting there. He's not doing ministry. His focus is primarily connecting and reuniting with his missionary brothers. Now, perhaps this was a reason, uh, this was a matter of two things. Maybe one, Paul believed in the necessity of two or three witnesses being able to establish the authenticity of a message. Perhaps that's the reason why he didn't just jump right into ministry or think when he got there, oh, I'm just going to do evangelism in the meantime because he thought of the need for two or three witnesses. Um, Perhaps also uh, he believed that there needed to be accountability, that there should be no single rogue teacher, that there needed to be accountability to ensure the sanctity and purity of, of the gospel message. Perhaps these are all reasons why Paul didn't go there with his kind of initial intention to just kickstart ministry uh, without Paul, or excuse me, without Timothy and Silas. But while Paul is waiting, something happens. He's likely spending his days traveling throughout the city, taking all of the things that are happening there. I'm sure he's heard about Athens before. Intrigued to see what the city is all about, what it has to offer. I can see him journeying through the buzzing city, seeing in the high places around the city all of their temples and altars and images devoted to this massive pantheon of gods that the Greeks had. And the soul and heart of this Jewish man that had been immersed in the first and second commandments began to burn with a holy fire of righteous indignation. 
He didn't look at the statues and idols and temples and go, wow, they have great architecture. He saw false worship. And a worship of everything but the one true God. He saw idolatry. Paganism. Notice here that it is not primarily a desire to see the people of Athens saved that first created in Paul a burning fire to proclaim the truth of the one true God. It wasn't that Paul was sitting there waiting and going, you know what, these, all these people just need to know about Jesus, so I'm going to preach the gospel. That wasn't the first thing that provoked him to preach. No, beloved. Rather, his evangelism and preaching was first and foremost a desire to protect and proclaim the glory of God against all false worship and idolatry. It says his spirit was provoked when? Because he saw that the city was full of idols, not sinners. The primary agent of Paul's evangelism was first and foremost the glory of God, then the salvation of sinners. The city was full of idols. One ancient Greek historian quipped that in Athens it's easier to find a God than a man there. There were some three... So there's, there's different arguments, something between two to 3,000 um, idols or statues or temples dedicated to gods in Athens. The bust of, of Hermes on every corner. Statues and altars on the porches and colonnades of every home. The centaurs and the lapithae on the Parthenon. The large statues of Apollo and Aphrodite which we often go and admire for their form and beauty, caused Paul to shudder and burn with a holy anger. Because as men bowed themselves before these idols, Paul knew, as what he says in 1 Corinthians 10.20, that the worship they offered was not to God, but to demons. You see, the primary driving force for Paul's evangelism and ministry was not first the salvation of men. Of course, he wanted to see men saved. But it was first and foremost the glory of God. The glory of God is what drove these missionaries to action. Yes, they wanted to see men saved. But beloved, the primary desire to see men saved is to see the one true God glorified. That's why I want sinners saved. So that God can be fully glorified in their life for the first time. That for the first time, the Imago Dei on them can be used for what it was made for. And that's declaring His glory wherever they be. And in whatever they do. The primary hope for the salvation of men is first and foremost the glory of God. God created men to fill the earth. The commission He gave to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Adam and his posterity, the image bearers of God, were to proclaim His glory over every square inch of the globe. 
But because of the fall, men have worshipped the creation rather than the creator. When Christ came, the last Adam, as he's referred to, he inaugurated the messianic kingdom, which sets out to reverse the curse. It's the whole point. It's the reversal of the curse. That's why we, as believers, are new creations. We're new creations. We are the first fruits of that which is going to come to fullness. The full new heavens and earth in the glory to come. We are the first fruits of that. Christ came to reverse the curse by creating a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that the glory of God is proclaimed among every people group over every corner of this globe. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that He will not return until the fullness of the gospel is proclaimed in all people groups. Because the last Adam will be perfect in fulfilling His commission. The primary driving factor of missionary work and evangelistic proclamation is the burning desire to see God glorified among the nations. The salvation of men is the means by which that reality comes to pass. When a person in a group that is unreached or doesn't know Christ, comes to know King Jesus, there His glory has now entered into a place where He was not rightly receiving it before. And what breaks my heart is that we live in a time where even in the church, the glory of God is held so lightly. Every ministry, every program, every preaching style, every new theme or schema that churches have tried to draw up over so many years now have been man-centered, not God-centered. We're not driven by the glory of God. When we read things like be hospitable, be compassionate, give the cup of gold water, do all of that, that's wonderful. But what makes you, Christian, different from anybody else giving a cup of cold water? You need to ask yourself that. The difference is, is everything we do is permeated and focused on giving God the glory. I help, I love, I care. I listen. I eat, I drink to the glory of God. That's the difference. It's all about Him. We do it all for Him. We want to see Him glorified. We live in a world full of paganism and idolatry. A world that mocks and ridicules and despises any notion of God's truth. We see God's truth slandered and undermined in half the commercials on the television, practically every movie we watch, and the music we listen to. And we don't even blink an eye anymore. It's just the way it is. The provocation meter on our heart for the glory of God has grown numb. What's even worse 
is that if Paul journeyed through the timelines of most Christian social media pages today, he would once again find a city full of idols. Putting their hope in everything but him. Spending their time being evangelists for every other cause but him. Ready to die for every other purpose but him. Oh, that we would have a zeal for the glory of God once again. That every action and word that proceeds from us would be filtered through the lens of, does this bring God glory? I love what John Piper says. He said, one of the worst things you can ask as a Christian is, is it a sin? Because we like to live as bare minimalists in our Christian life. So here's the sin, and we like to stand right next to it. It's not a sin. Beloved, if you dance around the fire long enough, you will get burnt. The question shouldn't be, is it a sin? Because what that says is, God, I just want to live the bare minimum so that I meet the mark. The question we ought to be asking is not, is it a sin, but does it give God the glory? Does it glorify God? Is what I'm doing giving Him glory? Is when I talk this way or live this way or act this way, is He supremely glorified through that? And if it isn't, I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. Everything changes in a church's mission, preaching, and action and an individual's believer's life when the primary motivating factor of our entire existence is the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. You were fashioned by divine hands for His glory. Every hair and taken away also, placed on your head, was given by God. Removed by God. There's not a sparrow that is suspended in the air apart from the sovereignty of God. Every color in the rainbow, every drop of dew on the, 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 the limb of the tree, every song of the sparrow in the morning, every crashing of the wave, every looking at the galaxy in orbit is all been put there by God to say, glorify me. It's to reveal His glory and for us to go, man, God is good. When you drive through this postcard that we have called Anchorage, Alaska, and you see those glorious mountain ranges, every morning you should be nearly moved to tears going, God is amazing. Every time you see a baby, every time you see that heartbeat on the ultrasound, you are seeing a shout of the glory of God. The central driving force of a believer's life is solely Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you came in here purposeless this morning, that's your purpose. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what you were made for. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you may say, well, that sounds boring. Beloved, He is an infinite being. Which means He is a stream of infinite pleasure. 
For at his right hand there is pleasures forevermore. This holy, righteous jealousy for the name and glory of God drove Paul to preaching everywhere and every day in the city of Athens. He said, I just can't wait on these guys anymore. I don't know what's going on. I'm sure they're busy. But I, I can't sit by and watch this happen any longer. He goes to the synagogue as he always does uh, there to preach. But then we are told that he goes also to the marketplace, the Agora there in Athens, where everyone would be gathered. They would all come, not just to buy. It was kind of like their Starbucks of the day. They would come to talk, to, to, to plug in, to hear what was going on, and to hear what TED Talk was being given in Athens that day. The glory of God drove this evangelist to proclaim the truth about God and salvation away from all of these false idols here in Athens. And as soon, he starts catching the attention of some people, some of the the notable philosophers there in the Agora in Athens. We're told that these philosophers were from the two major schools of philosophy at the time there in Greece, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were those who said, you know, gods, the gods probably exist, but they were materialists. Yes, those did not become a, an invention in the 17th and 18th century. They were materialists well on. They were what's called atomic materialists. Uh, they believed the gods formed us. All there is is the material realm, and there is no immortality of the soul. Then once you die, you just go back into the, the, the pot, and that's how it happens. There, there is nothing beyond this. And so when you have that mindset, this was the the focus of Epicurean philosophy. They believed that because the gods were distant, because there was no afterlife or any sort of judgment, the principal teaching of theirs was that they should always seek moderate pleasure and the avoidance of pain to enjoy the fullest sense of life. You've heard this teaching about Epicurus, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is the Epicurean slogan. There's no afterlife, and so you should try to get as much pleasure as you can within moderation because too much pleasure creates pain. So moderate pleasure and avoidance of pain because tomorrow it's it. It's it. And then there were the Stoics. The Stoics were in many ways uh, fatalist, as we would call them. Uh, they, were, they believed that all men were created by Zeus, uh, but that the meaning of life and the gods themselves are all fixed by fate. Fate is the governing principle of all things. Even the gods are governed by fate. You can't change it. It just is what it is. That's how things are. There's nothing that you can do about it. And so the primary purpose of life was to align yourself with your fate and embrace it as it is, as virtually as possible, or excuse me, as virtuously as possible. So to live a life embracing the suffering, taking it head on, using whatever instruments and tools that you've been given to, to basically buck up, take, make the most of it, embrace pain head on, but stay the course and be virtuous in the prospect. There are a lot of Stoics who are alive today. Uh, many of them would think that our grandfathers were Stoics or our dads were Stoics. Um, but in many ways, if you've ever heard the poem uh, Invictus, Bloodied but not bowed, right? That's the idea of the Stoics. Fate is what it is. Embrace it. That's what it is. But in reality, beloved, this is what we all do. We all have this kind of philosophical mindset. 
We all try to find meaning in the world. That's all they're doing. They're grasping at what they can to try and provide meaning in the world. That really is the central uh, aspect of all philosophy. Trying to find meaning and purpose in a world of suffering. So these two groups begin to come to the Apostle Paul and try to figure out what in the world is this Jewish man teaching. Some of them call him a babbler. Now the Greek here literally is, it, it basically is translated a seed picker, a gutter sparrow. The idea here is someone who has simply taken scraps of teaching from all over the place and is just regurgitating them but doesn't really know what they're talking about. I know a lot of seed pickers. You just take a lot of information that you're finding, perhaps YouTube, and you just come out and you just start spewing things that you've heard that you really don't know anything about. And that's what they see, that's what some of these groups see Paul as. This is some guy who's probably just heard a bunch of different teachings, is trying to piece them all together, uh, but doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's a, a seed picker, someone who just gets secondhand teaching, but doesn't really have anything new or novel to provide or offer. Others see him as a preacher of foreign deities. And we see this because you may think, well, where do they get this idea of deities from? Paul's clearly a monotheist, a triune, a Trinitarian monotheist. But where in the world are they getting this idea of deities? Well, Luke actually gives us why they think he is a preacher of foreign deities. It says, for he was preaching both Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Greek word for resurrection is Anastasius. And there is actually a Greek god named Anastasia. And so they were hearing Yesu and Anastasia thinking, oh, these are two gods. He believes in this Jesus and Anastasia. When in reality, that's not at all what Paul was teaching there. So they thought he was, here's just somebody who's preaching some multiple deities. Let's hear what he has to say. But no, Paul was preaching, we're told, Jesus and the resurrection. Beloved, that is always the central message of Christianity. Christ crucified for the sake of sin and resurrected in victorious power. That's our message. That's our message. Paul didn't change that message. No matter where he went, he will change the packaging we will see in a second, but he never changes the substance. Christ crucified and risen. There's no such thing as a Christianity apart from Christ crucified and resurrected. If you deny the resurrection, you are no longer a Christian. If you deny the crucifixion of Christ, you're no longer a Christian. Like you, just, you can be whatever you want to be, but you can't be a Christian. You cannot deny the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and be a Christian. The problem here is, once again... These men are, have no idea what he's talking about. They actually think he's talking about two gods, not actually Jesus and him being raised from the dead. So they begin to ask, hey, we'd like to hear these strange things that you're teaching us. But we've got to get out of this marketplace. It's kind of loud. Everyone else is talking. So let's go to a place so that we can bring you to our intelligentsia. The kind of supreme intellectual leaders, really what was the supreme court of Athens at the Areopagus, which is literally translated Mars Hill. Mars Hill. These judges that would sit at Mars Hill were known as Areopagites. Now, 
Why Paul was brought to them was not clear. Was it to see that whether or not the court's decision was that, hey, Paul's deities, we should just add them to our pantheon. Sound like some good gods. We should just add them to the group. Was it to give him a license to be a preacher? We're not sure exactly what it was. Was it just to say, maybe this is an individual we need to keep an eye on because uh, he's saying some, some, some goofy things. But the primary reason is given to us by Luke in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time ex- in nothing except til- telling or hearing something new. That word, spend their time literally, means that this is what they did for leisure time. This is for leisure. We just want to hear something new. What do you got to tell us today? They would spend all their time. Work was not a big thing in Athens, but hearing something new was. They were people who were always looking for the next best thing, the next new teaching, the next new philosophy. It was a a culture of spectators needing to be uh, fueled by novel and exciting messages while mocking the repeated teaching of ancient truth. I find it terrifyingly ironic that many churches could be characterized by the same mentality. A culture of spectators fueled by novel and exciting messages mocking the repeated teaching of truth. And I find it even more terrifyingly ironic that two of the largest churches that I know of who took the name Mars Hill fell into scandal and heresy because they were cultures of spectators fueled by novel and exciting messages. Mars Hill in Seattle, Mars Hill in Michigan. There's actually a little whole podcast called The Fall of Mars Hill now. Yet, in spite of all of this, Little did these philosophers know in their simple inquisition to hear new teaching, they were being used by King Jesus to provide a platform for the proclamation of truth about God and about man and about salvation and judgment. In other words, yes, Jesus is even sovereign over academia. He's sovereign over academia. Beloved, I understand what our modern academic world has fallen into. I can assure you that there wasn't a single professor in Athens who knew, cared, or thought anything highly about a Jesus of Nazareth when Paul went there. But it's amazing what King Jesus does when we have bold proclaimers of truth who speak that truth directly to and in the midst of academia. So what I say to you today is not fear sending your children to college. Just make sure they go equipped as missionaries of the gospel. If you are worried about your children, beloved, invest in them right now. So that when you send children from your home, whether they go to the military, the workforce, or academia, send them out as missionaries of the gospel. Because King Jesus is sovereign over it all. Paul never wasted a platform to proclaim the truth of God. And may the same be true of all of us. That brings us to our second point. We see the proclamation to the Areopagites. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, 
to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from that one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Alright, have a wonderful day. God bless you. Paul begins his address by finding a point of contact with the Athenians. He is building a bridge to truth. This is important for all of us. We must meet people where they are. We must find a point of contact in their worldview and build a bridge from there to Christ. He says, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Now, this statement may sound complimentary. It's not. It literally means, I see that you're really superstitious. I see that you're very superstitious. And, but what's awesome about this statement is it's really ambiguous. So, it's an, it's an ambiguous attention getter. I, I can see these guys sitting there going, did he just compliment us? Or is he insulting us? Nevertheless, they're drawn in. This ambiguous attention getter. He says, I, as, as I was stumbling along, as I, as I was going through your city, I came to see that there was an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, the agnostotheo, the unknown God. On the road to Athens, as he would have been coming in on the Hamaxetus Highway, there was actually multiple altars on the way into the city to the unknown gods. And the idea was, is all of these foreign travelers can just stop and worship their god at these places. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. We have a massive pantheon of gods, but just in case we left somebody out, let's have a catch-all. That's the unknown gods. So if we didn't know, don't know your name, hey, here you go. This is for you. We don't want you to be angry with us. It's the idea here. There were catch-alls for all the deities that might be out there. They were okay with worship in which they were ignorant. Uh, they, they, they didn't mind worshiping something they were ignorant of. As long as we appease every god that's out there. Because we don't want any bad, we don't need plagues and stuff like that going on here. And it's here that Paul uses both their idolatry and their ignorance as the launching point for his proclamation of the one true God. He says that what you worship as unknown, now this is important, he's not saying what you worship as the unknown God, literally what, he, what the, the, the Greek reads is that what you worship ignorantly, what you worship unknowingly, this I proclaim to you. 
In other words, I have been sent to bring truth and clarity to you. The light of God's truth is the only thing that can burn away the fog of man's sinful ignorance. The light of God's truth is the only thing that can burn away the fog of sinful ignorance. That's why we preach it and teach it. Now, Paul does not appeal to a text here. He doesn't say, well, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, in the 2nd chapter of Psalm, in the ninth chapter of Amos. Why? Because those people have been like, who the heck is Amos? Who's Isaiah? We like songs. Sing it to us. You know, there's no point of contact there like there would have been in the synagogue. So Paul preaches differently when he's in a context of people who have a knowledge of the Word of God compared to those who have absolutely zero knowledge of the Word of God. Yet, what's amazing is that though he does not use a biblical text when doing evangelism, he never abandons biblical truth when doing evangelism. He may not apply to a, 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 he may not appeal to a biblical text, but he never abandons biblical truth. Paul did not begin with the first principles of Plato. He began with the presuppositional truths of a biblical worldview. Beloved, we never abandon our worldview as Christians. Why would we abandon this solid, firm foundation? For that, for someone who out there is struggling in a shaky one. We meet them where we are, we build a bridge to truth, and we stand upon the biblical worldview. The reason that you feel this way, the reason that you feel that there's a longing for something more out there, is because you were made by a Creator who stamped His image upon you. We may not appeal to a biblical text in a moment, but we never abandon biblical truth in it. In this speech to the Areopagus, Paul provides the truth about God, the truth about man, and the truth about salvation and judgment. He speaks truth in the face of agnosticism. Now remember here, this is a summary of what Paul gave that day. This is not, I can assure you, the full message. My sermon to you today is nearly 5,000 words. This is 269. I can assure you Paul spoke longer than that. So Luke here is merely giving a summary of major points. So you may have things like, well, why doesn't he go long into the crucifixion of Christ and things like that? Well, the fact that the man was raised from the dead says he, he, that it's obvious, implied that he had also talked about his crucifixion and things like that. So once again, recognize this isn't the full exact message that Paul gave that day. It is a summary, as all historians give, of the primary points of focus given in the message. But we can learn something from each and one of those primary focuses. Paul begins by proclaiming and revealing the one true God. He introduces God as first the transcendent creator. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, and then going down, does not live in temples made by man. So first off, men of Athens, God is the creator of all things. 
This one God is the creator of all things. Everything finds its origin in Him. He is the first cause. He is the unmoved mover. He is the alpha of all things and all peoples. And He is transcendent. What does that mean? What is transcendent? It means that He is above and over that which He has created. He is above, outside, and over all that which He has created. He is not confined to temples or some localized space. He is not confined to this building. Beloved, God is everywhere this morning. He is in millions of church places and homes and house churches. He is all over the place right now. There's not a single place our God. He's not confined to this building. And yet He's filling this building as we speak. As He is inside and indwelled each and every one of us. We'll talk more about that in a second. This undermines the pantheism and the panentheism of Athens. Pantheism is that, that God is in all of these things or that God finds Himself within certain objects or idols. All of that is removed here by Paul's teaching. All of their shrines and temples are being attacked right from the get-go. A lot of times people would say that here in Paul's sermon it shows a man who's timid to speak. I don't see that at all. Right from the outset, he is undermining their worldview. But not only is God the transcendent creator, Paul says he's also the sole sovereign Lord. Verse 24, it says, He is Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 26 says, He has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of all mankind. Men of Athens, there is no pantheon of gods governing the created order. There is no God of the ocean. There is no God of the wisdom. There is no God of love and God of war. There is just but one sole sovereign God over all. There is one sole sovereign Lord who governs all things in heaven and earth. So much so that the time frame and boundary of every human being's existence is appointed by this God. There is not a single line of a nation, not a single lifetime of a person that has not been established by the God of creation. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to this Lord. This is why the Scriptures are so firm in calling God's people not to be a people who worry about tomorrow. Who can add a single day to their life through worry? Rather, We are to be a people who trust the one who holds tomorrow in his hands. We don't worry about tomorrow because we know the one who holds it in his hands. But not only is he the transcendent creator and the sole sovereign Lord, men of Athens, this God is the self-sufficient provider. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Beloved, this God is the great I Am. He does not become, nor does he ever reduce. He is the substance of being itself. You cannot add anything to God, nor take anything from Him. And He is not dependent upon anything for His being. 
Beloved, not a single act of worship. And this is important because here we are gathered in a worship service this morning. Not a single act of worship will ever add a single ounce of glory to God. We don't add anything to God this morning by being here. But we receive everything from being here. Beloved, a worship service is not where we come to serve God. It's a place where God serves us. And it don't mean that as some, you know, we're something he bows to. I mean that by we are nothing apart from him. God is glorified in being our sustainer. That's why Jesus himself says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are the product of a self-sufficient, sustaining God. We add nothing to Him. He gives everything to us. Even the very breath to those who use it to curse Him is the gift from Him. All of mankind, all of life, every breath, everything, Paul says, is directly provided by this God. This is the supreme picture of God's unbelievable common grace who causes it both to rain on the just and the unjust. He who gives life and breath to the very ones who curse Him with it. Oh, Athenians, this God does not need your altars or services or sacrifices to add anything to His being and glory. For every one of you owe your exact existence to Him. Yet this God is not only the transcendent creator, he is not only the sovereign Lord, he is not only the self-sufficient provider, he is also the imminent sustainer. The imminence of God means that not only is he transcendent, out, above, and over, but he is near and close to his creation. He is both transcendent and imminent. Above and over, near and close to Verse 27 and 28. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's not actually far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Beloved, this is what makes the triune God of Scripture so marvelously unique from all other false gods. He's not just a God who's out there, who created everything, wound it up like a clock and just watches it run. Says, sorry, I wish I could do more. He's not a God who is confined to His creation and manipulated by men as is the case with others. No, He is both transcendent and imminent. And perhaps there is no greater picture of that than the Lord Jesus Himself. The God-man who is both the agent by which all things were created and yet entered into creation, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of mankind, being obedient and humble even to the point of death on the cross. So much so that when you go to your transcendent creator in prayer, you also go to a transcendent creator who can say, I know. I've experienced the pain, the suffering, and sorrow. What a God we have. Transcendent and imminent. 
He is no wood carving, no golden statue or nonchalant deity who is fickle and unconcerned with his creation. But he is a God who actively sustains everything from the growth of the crops to the birth of a child, to the raising and tearing down of rulers, to the dressing the lilies of the field, to the feeding the bird and the tree. Paul lays out the profound truth of God and directs, to, and directs men in a way that they can understand based upon the general revelation that they had available to them. He gives them the truth about God that has been revealed by God in a way that they can understand in the light of the revelation that they've received. The one true God is the transcendent creator, the sovereign Lord, the self-sufficient provider, and the eminent sustainer. But then Paul also provides them the truth about mankind. Verse 25, he says that all of mankind depend on this God for existence. There are no tribal deities which sustain one group compared to another. There isn't a God of America versus a God of Israel versus a God of Syria versus a God of anywhere else. There's just one God. There's just one God and all of mankind owe their allegiance to Him. Verse 26 shows that all mankind has a single origin in the God of heaven. That all mankind comes from the first man, Adam. All of them come from Adam. We all come from the same person, the same starting point, the same origin. You see, the Athenians believed that they were made from a special soil by Zeus. And that they had racial superiority over all other groups. And Paul crushes any kind of thinking of racial superiority. Because there isn't a race, there's just one race. Human race. That all comes from Adam. Period. From the very beginning, we have one point of origin. And it began in Eden. All of mankind finds its beginning in Adam. And this means two things. One, there's only one race, the human race. Two, even though it, we're not told here, I, I can guarantee Paul went into this and it's implied, all of mankind share in the sin of Adam. Not only are we all from one point of origin, we all struggle with the same problem, sin. Given to us by our first father. And needing to be removed by the greater Adam, Christ. There is no shade of brown or place of birth that puts anyone as superior or better than anyone else. We've all been formed and made by God, the Creator. Which is why Paul actually uses one of their own poets, uh, Eratus, to quote that even your own thinkers know that we are indeed the offspring of God. That we indeed find our creative origin in Him. Now, if you go and read the poem that is quoted here, it's called Phenomena by Eridus. This is actually uh, given, it's actually referring to Zeus. But what Paul's saying here is what you believe about Zeus is true about the one true God. He is the creator. He is the one point of origin for all of us. And that's why when he says there that we are God's offspring here, this is not referring to the redemptive sonship or daughtership that comes from being adopted into the family of God by salvation. This is not redemptive offspring here. This is referring to the point of creation. We all have been made and fashioned by God. Every one of us are His creation. His product. His doing. The third truth regarding man 
is that we were created to know and recognize and respond to our created creator. God created the world and appointed the times of men's and boundaries for the very purpose that they would rightly worship him and give him the glory wherever he has placed them. That's what verse 26 and 27 is all about. But because of our sinful nature, we have exchanged the glory of God in our ignorance and turned to idols of all sorts, which justify our burning pleasures. And that can only be undone by the sovereign saving grace of the Lord, who changes our hearts and opening our eyes to our foolishness to turn to Him. I believe that the background behind Romans chapter 1 and the the worshiping the created over the creator probably was first established by Paul during his time in Athens. Is where that idea became absolutely clear for him of what sin had done to corrupt the created order and disrupt our relationship with God. The fourth truth regarding man is the fact that we were all created in the image of God. Therefore, This should make all idolatry feel absolutely ridiculous to us. That's why he says, being then God's offspring, being an image-bearing, created being of God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This goes to show you the sheer level by which men have fallen into sin. That we, being image bearers of God, would be so quick to make idols of that which is produced by our own hands and thinking. What Paul's saying here is even in the unregenerate heart, the idea of worshiping an idol should be so absurd to any image bearer that I can make my God, I can make this thing to worship. That should be absolutely absurd to anyone to go, you know what, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right to worship this tree that I just went down and cut, used half of it to make an idol, and the other half to cook my food with. That should should just unsettle you as an image bearer of God. But as Calvin said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. That's why the incomprehensible nature of God in the Bible, beloved... The fact that His ways are not our ways. The fact that so much about His triune nature and sovereign purposes are hard to explain or are absolutely unexplainable by men is what I believe one of the greatest truths of the existence of God. If you could explain everything about God, you could explain everything about God away. It is the very fact that He is indeed incomprehensible that I believe is the truth that He indeed exists. Verse 30 and 31, he now turns to the truth about salvation and judgment. I love this. This is where he gets to the now what. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When it says that God overlooked such ignorance and idolatry, that doesn't mean that God was indifferent. He didn't care. But rather, it refers to the fact that prior to the incarnation, God had chosen to leave the nations outside of Israel for the most part, with the exception of of Babylon at times, Persia at times, uh, Nineveh. But for the most part, He had left the nations to themselves. 
He had left the nations to their sin to go on as the sinners that they were. That's what it means that he overlooked. As, as he said back in Acts 14, he left them to their ways. But something changed with the inauguration of the new covenant kingdom of Christ. Because when the new covenant kingdom of Christ came, the kingdom was no longer isolated to a thin strip of soil in the Middle East. It now was to be ushered in to the entire globe. Stretching from Jerusalem to what did Jesus say? To the ends of the earth. And so now the time, the day of the Lord has come. It's a new day, the day of salvation. That's what Psalm 118 is referring about when it says, this is the day the Lord has made. We live in that day. It's the day of the Messiah, the day of the inauguration and the coming and the growing of the messianic kingdom. In other words, before today, men of Athens, God left you to your ignorance and idolatry and to the judgment for such wickedness. But now in His amazing grace, He commands you and people everywhere to repent. With the coming of Christ and His inauguration of the kingdom of God, all people everywhere are called to turn from their ignorance and idolatry and to the one true God of heaven. And this denotes the fact that there is no salvation anywhere apart from repentance and faith in Jesus. Beloved, if universalism was true, what Paul is doing here is absolutely ignorant. If everybody's just going to heaven anyways, why waste our time with missions? And if inclusivism is true, which says as long as people worship what they know to be true, as, as devout as they can, God will accept it. Once again, this would be absolutely vain and absurd. The reason that we do missions is because apart from the saving name of Jesus Christ and repentance and faith in Him, there is no salvation. And hope that burns a fire in you and a hunger in you to go to those places where He isn't being proclaimed. But why should men everywhere repent and turn to God? Because there will be a final judgment. Where all men will stand before their Creator, the righteous King of Heaven, Jesus Christ. For He is the appointed man that, jo- that, he, that He's talking about here. Once again, this is not Paul's not getting into a theology over the natures of Christ, His divine and human nature. He's simply establishing a point that this appointed man, this man, Jesus Christ, He is the appointed Lord and Judge over all. That's what He's driving home here. That's the focus in light of what these men can understand right now. And it is by Him that God will judge all people. And how can we know that's going to happen? What's the assurance that we have? Is He just going on a whim here? No, what does He say? God has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. That's the assurance. That's the assurance of repentance and hope. And that's the assurance of judgment for for not repenting. Is the resurrection of Christ. Paul did not prove the resurrection. He didn't say, let me give you guys 13 evidences for the resurrection. Paul uses the resurrection as the proof. Think of that. Paul doesn't say, let me give you 13 reasons for the the resurrection. He says, the resurrection is the proof. The fact that there is an empty grave in Israel is the proof. And Christ is risen, and because Christ is risen, all men everywhere who repent and turn to Him will be saved. And all men everywhere who do not will be judged. For every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord.
Where you stand in relation to Him in this life is exactly the basis by which your eternal state will be fixed. Paul had given them the truth about God, about man, and about salvation and judgment in a way they could grasp. But what would be their response? Real quickly, we see the responses to Paul's teaching. Verse 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There were three responses that day. The first was mockery, a sneering. They sneered at the thought of a Jewish man being raised from a grave. Remember, most of them didn't even believe in an afterlife, much less an actual physical resurrection. And there are countless others who continue with them today. Many mock the triune nature of God. Many mock the divine human nature of Christ. Many mock the teaching of the resurrection from the grave. And if that is you today, I say repent and turn to Christ. Repent and turn to Christ, for He will shut the mouth of all mockers on the day of judgment. When every knee will bow and tongue confess, you will confess that Jesus is Lord. I say, do it now. Do it now. The second response is what I call a passive agnosticism. You know, we'll hear you again about this. They found Paul's words amusing, but not convincing. They remained on the outside. They saw Paul as either just another fascinating teacher... Or, you know what, this guy, he's just another body talking. I, you know, we'll hear this another time. But guess what? There wasn't another time. Paul left. Paul left. Oh, beloved, is that you on the fence today? The almost Christian who keeps putting it off until tomorrow? Are you a, a, a peddler of religions? The one who who tries to find the good in each system of thought to to create your own pantheon of spirituality. Who liked the idea of Jesus, but has never come to know the person of Jesus. I say to you, repent and believe. Don't say, I'll hear again tomorrow. Tomorrow isn't promised. Tomorrow isn't promised. So many people across the world have learned that over the past year and a half to two years. Today is the day of salvation. Do not live in your passive agnosticism when the God of creation has revealed Himself to you this morning. For He is near to you in the proclamation of truth. The third response was that of salvation. Dionysius, one of the very intelligentsia himself, one of the judges who set over the Areopagus, came to salvation. A woman named Damaris and others, we are told, all came to saving faith in Christ at Mars Hill that day. The church in Athens had been born. There was no loss in Athens. Just gain. The kingdom had come to Athens, Greece. Oh, beloved, will we have the same passion for the glory of God that Paul did to proclaim the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about salvation and judgment on any platform we are given before any audience that we are given? Or will we back away? 
I can be sure if you will not be faithful with the little platforms, don't ever expect a big one. If you will refuse to talk to someone about Jesus over coffee, don't ever expect to speak to world leaders about it. Be profound in whatever platform He gives you. Whether it's an elevator ride, an interaction in the store, coffee at the table, or giving the prayer breakfast speech at the mayor's prayer breakfast. Use the platform for Christ, for truth. Lead this place with a resolve to not fear men. Yes, we may be mocked, we may be brushed off with indifference, but there might just be one who is saved by God through the means of of the bold proclamation of truth. And that's worth it! If Hillside Baptist Church has existed almost 50 years and that existence was to bring one person to Christ for over those 50 years, it was worth it. And if you get shut down a thousand times for proclaiming Christ and yet one person is saved, it was worth it. Because God is getting a glory now that He would not have otherwise. It's worth it. Because Christ is worth it. Leave this place with a resolve and stand for the God and proclaim His truth to the glory of His name and for the salvation of souls. Will you put up the picture, the final picture here? That today is at the bottom of the Areopagus. That's at the bottom of Mars Hill on a bronze plaque. That's exactly what we read today. That's exactly the sermon of Paul still being proclaimed 2,000 years later at the Areopagus. The truth of the one true God is still being proclaimed and calling men to Him in repentance and faith to this day. I love that last word there. Anastasia de Necron. Raised from the dead. 2,000 years later, Paul is still calling people there to Athens to a resurrected Savior. All because his zeal for the glory of God caused him to boldly stand for truth in the face of ignorance and idolatry. Beloved, this was the boldness for the glory of God that turned the world upside down. And I pray that today Christ has provoked every one of our souls this morning to leave this place with the same zeal for the glory of His name and the cause of His kingdom. The kingdom of the one true God. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for Your Word. You show us so clearly how we should interact with the world around us. Whether we are dealing with those who are already established firm in religion, like those were in the synagogues, or whether we are talking to those who have absolutely no framework by which to understand you, God. You have shown us how we are to apply the the revealed truths that you've shown us into those worldviews, how to find bridges of truth to reach them for the saving message of Christ. God, I pray that there isn't a heart that leaves this place that is not absolutely burning with a zeal for Your glory. That You would stamp eternity on our eyeballs. That You would so 
move in our hearts and our head and our hands to want to live for you, not as a means of thinking we are adding anything to you, but living for you because you add everything to us. There is nothing that we have that is not first and foremost yours. And so God, let us use everything you've given us, every talent, every time, every treasure for your glory. Give us a boldness to stand for truth in the face of the idolatry and ignorance of today. Let us be bold, prophetic witnesses of your kingdom glory, found alone in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who you have made and set absolutely firm the reality therein because of the reality of the resurrection. We serve a risen Savior, and He's in the world today. And He moves and He acts upon the Word of His people. For He is the Word of His people. So God, drive us to action as bold proclaimers of the Gospel for Your glory. And if there's anyone here today who has mocked this, who has sat on the fence in the passive agnosticism for so long, who just hasn't been sure, God, make them sure. Open their eyes to see and their hearts to see the glory and goodness and the salvation found in Christ alone. That they may stand on judgment, not in condemnation, but in the sweet reply, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because we are not adorned in any righteousness of our own, but in the righteousness of Christ, by faith. Move us to action, God. Say these things in the name of Christ. Amen.